Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Jed Pearl, author of Calder, The Conquest of Space, The Later Years, 1940-1976. Jed Pearl, author of Calder, The Conquest of Space. Now, you've written two books about Alexander Calder, and between them, the two books total over a thousand pages. What is it about Alexander Calder that fascinates you so much to give him this kind of treatment? Well, first of all, there, this artist who's one of the best known American artists of the 20th century had never had a biography. There had never been a biography written about Calder. So uh, this was an opportunity to tell a story that had really never been told uh, when I began work on this uh, two-volume biography a dozen years ago. Uh, Calder is also a wonderful biographical subject. He, he's a marvelous sculptor, but he's also a man who lived an amazingly rich and varied life. He was born in Philadelphia in 1898. Uh, his parents were both artists. His paternal grandfather was a sculptor, uh, who everybody in uh, in Philadelphia area, I think, know, knows. Um, his life took him to Europe when he was in his 20s. Uh, he met the great love of his life, his wife, Louisa, on a boat coming back to America uh, at the end of the 20s. And they, he, Sandy and Louisa Calder, uh, everybody called Calder Sandy. His name was Alexander. His first name was Alexander, but everybody called him Sandy. Sandy and Louisa Calder then spent the next uh, 40 some odd years moving back and forth between America and France. Um, in some way, they were citizens of the world, though they also felt themselves to be very much Americans. Um, and they had extraordinary friendships. They both had an incredible gift for friendship. So the story is not just about Calder and his wife and his two daughters and his, the family. The story also comes to be about uh, the art and architecture of the 20th century. He was close friends with Marcel Duchamp, with Jean Miro. He was close to the great Finnish architect, Alvar Aalto. Uh, he, uh, he traveled in South America. He had many friendships and collaborations in Brazil, in Venezuela, um, in the Middle East, in India. So it, it really becomes a story, not just about one man, but about the evolution of art in the 20th century and how what begins with Calder and friends of his like Miro and Duchamp as a kind of small group of avant-garde artists becomes um, between the 30s when he really starts out uh, as a artist who's known in avant-garde circles it from there it evolves over a period of decades into this incredibly international story uh with more and more people a wider and wider public being interested in what he's doing so so it's a it's a big it's a big story and i i i think it it 
deserved a big canvas. How, how famous was he? I mean, not just in the, uh, in the art world, but in the world in general. The, the, the explosive fame came to him sometime between the late 50s and the early 1960s. Uh, you know, people today, I think, you know, we, we, always, we talk about rock stars, we talk about rock stars in politics and in art and uh, in all kinds of fields. And I think it's hard for us to sometimes grasp that there was a time, and in a way in certain creative fields, there still is uh, a quality of being famous in a smaller world. And that was true of Calder in the 1930s uh, and early 1940s. He was very famous in a small circle, among a small circle of artists and art lovers. In 1943, he had a breakthrough show at the Museum of Modern Art. It was his first uh, big city museum show, retrospective. And that was really a game changer. The show opened and it was so popular in 1943, this is during the war, um, that they actually extended it uh, for, for a number of uh, weeks into uh, the early weeks of 1944. And that, show started to pivot him from being an artist beloved by a smaller group of people to a large group of people. But because of the war, there was a kind of a, uh, a holding back. And then in the 50s, his popularity starts to grow. Interestingly, not really first in America, but more in Europe and, and interestingly in South America, where uh, younger artists and a younger collecting public in Brazil, especially, were really excited about what he was doing. And then in the late 50s, it just like it pops. And in the 50, in the 60s, he starts to get all these commissions for monumental public sculptures. Uh, and from then on until uh, his death in 1970, 1976, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's just, Calder everywhere. Um, and of course, the mobile, which was his invention, becomes this kind of ubiquitous uh, phenomenon where, you know, uh, people imagine that Calder invented the thing that's over your child's crib, you know, um, and people, all kind of uh, hobbyists are making mobiles. And of course, this is the mobile is something that he, uh, he named. Um, uh, and literally invented in the early 1930s. No, uh, By the uh, 1950s, the word mobile is in the dictionary, actually. You, you say in your book that he considered himself an avant-garde artist, but when is there a danger if you consider yourself an avant-garde artist and you are suddenly adopted into the mainstream that you get somewhat suspect among your other avant-garde artists? Absolutely, you're, you're pointing to a, a kind of fascinating theme that runs through a lot of uh, the later years of his life, uh, in which he's in a way living uh, a kind of double life, which was true of other people. I think it was true of Picasso by, by the 1960s, uh, where you have this, this, this um, close to you community of artists and friends um, who kind of understand this long adventure you've been on. Um, and and he and his wife lived a, a, a rather simple bohemian life to the end of their 
days um, with, you know, kind of, they, they like to live in the country, both in America, they lived in Connecticut, they lived a couple of hours from Paris in France. Um, and they, they loved simple food, they loved unpretentious furniture. Um, so you know, they, they never kind of lived the kind of glamorized Hollywood kind of life in that sense. But the perception of him uh, came more and more to be that he's this kind of popular public figure. Um, and there was also a perception that he was a kind of a funny guy. Um, he would often, when reporters came uh, to see him, you know, who were doing like short features for newspapers, uh, if you know, if he got the feeling that they didn't really understand much about art, he would make kind of off-the-cuff funny remarks. He was a, uh, he had a comic side to him and so he got this reputation of being a kind of amuser mobiles were these kind of funny fun things and uh uh he didn't like to talk a lot about his work in detail so he got sometimes the reputation of being uh a little simple-minded or uh simplistic uh and and he but he was so often frustrated by this um uh he, he would get pissed off when uh, people say said, oh, uh, you know, mobiles are just amusements or, uh, uh, you know, oh, your work doesn't mean anything. Uh, he would uh, he would push back, certainly among his friends. He would say that people are missing aspects of my work, sides of my work. Uh, and. And, and this this kind of paradox of who is this man became more and more uh, of, a, of, a, of a phenomenon in the in the 70s when he actually uh, did a collaboration with Braniff Airlines where he painted airplanes and uh, uh, and a lot a number of critics you know kind of mocked him for this they said oh he's he's sold out. I, I don't think he ever uh, sold out. He brought uh, a seriousness and an authenticity to, to everything he did. So if, if you had gone to Alexander Calder's studio while he was working, what would it have looked like? What did the studio look like? What did he look like when he was working? Well, he didn't like people in his studio when he was working, actually. So, but you could go and visit when he was, you know, downtime. Uh, his studios were chaotic to the visitor. They looked chaotic. Uh, it seemed like uh, this this kind of great jumble of tools and uh, cut pieces of metal and piled on tables and things that seemed half done and or undone leaning against the walls, hanging from the ceiling. But he knew where everything was. Uh, and, uh, you know, could, you know, go to a pile and pull out something he's done 30 years earlier and, uh, uh, you know, put it back together exactly uh, the way it it was supposed to be. Uh, he, he called his studios, not studios, but workshops. He, he said, I, I, I'm going to my shop. And, uh, you know, he, he had, he had uh, studied engineering in college. And uh, uh, he, he liked the, 
the, he liked to feel that making art had a kind of matter of fact, um, unpretentious quality to it. Uh, and that it somehow, uh, it, it wasn't this highfalutin thing. It was a process of making that connected what he did with what anybody who made something did, whether that person was perhaps an auto mechanic or uh, a baker or, or an engineer. Uh, and he loved practical people, practical people who also had a sense of beauty. A lot, he had a lot of close friendships with architects. And I, I think this is the explanation. An architect is somebody who, who knows uh, the facts, who's very practical. If you're putting up a building, you don't want it to fall down. But architects also have a powerful aesthetic sense. They're concerned with beauty. So there are lots and lots of friendships with architects. And in his later decades, when he started doing these monumental things, uh, which were too big to be done in his studio, where you're cutting pieces of metal that are too thick for the tools he had, he, he begins uh, in, in the 50s, really, collaborating both in Connecticut, in America, and in France with ironworks. And, uh, and he develops a, a very close symbiotic relationship with the people, the, art, the people who work in these factories in both Connecticut and uh, in uh, France. He, he lived in a small village, Sachet, near Tours, and he worked with a, a the BMO Ironworks and Tour. Um, and this wasn't uh, a case of making a plan and sending it to the factory and having them execute it. It was uh, a case of he would be in his studio alone and he'd work up a model maybe a couple of feet high. Um, and then he would take it to the Ironworks, whether in Connecticut or France. And they would work together first if it was going to be a really huge thing like 30 or 40 feet high they would there would be these intermediate models made for the really big things there would have to be wind tunnel tests and things um to see what kind of support you would need and he would be constantly making adjustments and at that point in the 60s it's really kind of wonderful a lot of his training as an engineer in college uh, where he had studied, you know, the properties of different metals, how things can, different metals can be joined, uh, uh, all, you know, kind of all kinds of basic physics. A lot of this stuff, which really hadn't been that important to his work in the 30s and 40s, suddenly it becomes very important uh, to understand all these things. Um, and he takes great pleasure in in these collaborative efforts uh and and he once he once kidded with a friend that uh well all the uh, guys at bmo they're all becoming art critics all these art workers like you know kind of getting into the act with me uh but but he loved he loved other people he was a people person and this became a, another kind of uh social experience for him that was also an artistic experience. He was, of course, guiding the whole thing, but working out problems with these people. And he really um, did not like the idea of anything being fabricated without 
his crew, his gang involved. There are a couple of cases where that was the case, where that did happen um, for, for different reasons. But even like when he did a big thing for Expo uh, uh, what's it, 67 in Montreal, yeah. Expo 67, yeah. I think it's cool. Yeah. Um, that work um, was uh, made in France, taken apart, and then shipped to Canada as was the great work that's in Grand Rapids, La Grande Vitesse, same thing, made in France in this, uh, in the BMO Ironworks, where he could be there every step of the way. And then his really preferred method was to have some of the people from that place go and set it up again uh, so that every everything was done uh, e exactly right. How did those pieces come about? I mean, the, the giant pieces you see out in front of, uh city buildings and or the the expo 67 i mean who who came up with the idea hey we should hire alexander calder and what was the process from that point to him saying okay i'll do it well he he had he had been dreaming of doing big things uh from the time he was in his early 30s um you, you, his father and his grandfather um, his grandfather, Alexander Milne Calder, and his father, uh, uh, Sterling Calder, had both been public sculptors. Um, you have his grand both his grandfather's and his father's work in Philadelphia. Um, and when Calder was a teenager, his father had had the sculpture projects at the Panama Pacific Exposition in San Francisco. And as a teenager, he had watched as small models, which were shipped out west of sculptures, were uh, were expanded into these full-size monumental sculptures for the Panama Pacific Exposition. So pu large public sculpture was always in his DNA. Um, and in the 30s, he kept trying to get people to do these things. Like around the 1930 World's Fair uh, in New York, uh, he, he tried to get people interested in uh, ideas he had for a, a huge moving sculpture, but nobody was interested. He did, he did something, uh, uh, he did do a project for the 39 World's Fair. He'd also done a small fountain for the uh, Spanish Pavilion at the 37 World's Fair in Paris. But uh, you know, in the 30s, A, nobody had money for these things. And the idea of abs monumental abstract sculpture was still, almost inconceivable. Uh, and and that was true in the 40s too. There wasn't a lot of interest in it. But again, as part of this kind of shift in the, in the post-war decades in the 50s and then really in the 60s, where avant-gardeism in general, whether James Joyce's novels or George Balanchine's ballets or Picasso's work were, were being seen and reaching a larger and larger audience by the mid to late 60s the idea of abstract art was much more acceptable and people really first in europe in europe before america began to think oh okay yeah maybe you could have a gigantic abstract sculpture in a public place though it remained controversial in america into the late 60s uh, there was a controversy in the 60s in New York, when Lincoln Center was going up in the mid 60s, uh, Calder was commissioned to do a sculpture, which is at Lincoln Center, uh, 
uh, which was going to be paid for by collect, uh, uh, a, a couple who were collectors. So it wasn't a question of money. But the Parks Commission, the New York Parks Commissioner, who controlled the outdoor spaces at Lincoln Center, was against having abstract sculpture in a public place in New York. This is in the 60s still. Um, and there was a big brouhaha about it. And finally, uh, Calder and, and his friends and supporters won. Uh, so there's resistance for a while. You know, people had this idea, a, a public sculpture is a guy on a horse or something like that, right? Uh, and it took a long time for that idea to change. Uh, what was the idea of abstract sculpture in a public place? Calder and his friends had thought a lot about this, and they had this idea uh, that having something that did not have a very, very specific meaning, that was not Thomas Jefferson or Abraham Lincoln, having something that was suggestive in some ways, that let an individual's imagination play a little bit, that that was a kind of art that could be a symbol of a democratic society. In other words, in a democratic society, people have the freedom to react and think and feel in their own way. And Calder's, Calder had friends, close friends, architects and art critics, who actually talked about the idea of abstract sculpture as being especially appropriate to the ethos of a democratic open society where you can react in your own way. Uh, and also it's not like you just stand in front of it and look at the face of the general or the uh, president, but you can kind of move around it and have your reactions. That idea begins to have more and more currency in the 60s. The, the commissions come about in different ways. Um, a lot of the greatest commissions, uh, you find that there's a personal connection um, uh, often ar an architect who really loves Calder's work, okay, uh, uh, for instance, architects at the firm of Skidmore, Owings and Merrill, we were responsible for a lot of the, the, the major modernist public buildings uh, and government buildings, probably both uh, private and publicly funded buildings after the war. Uh, Skidmore Owings Merrill became a big supporter of, of Calder's work and they would, so the architects would encourage um, private clients, for example, uh, the client commissioning a building, they would say, well, you really should have a sculpture here. And, you know, one of the people who you really, really should think about is, is Calder. Um, but some of the stories get very, very personal. Um, the story I begin volume two with. Um, uh, in Grand Rapids in 1969, a conservative Midwestern city, an enormous calder grows up in the center of town, La Grande Vitesse. And this is really um, because of a woman uh, named Nancy Trudell, uh, at the, back then she was named Nancy Mulnix, who um, had seen a film about Calder when she was a kid in school. And she was really impressed, she was really taken by uh, the shots of Calder's studio in this film. And uh, she eventually married a, a, a guy um, uh, named Lee Milnix, who was uh, from a, a kind of uh, uh, an important Grand Rapids family. And she got involved in public affairs there. And 
she is the one who got this idea that as part of reviving the old downtown in Grand Rapids, we should have a sculpture. Um, and she then, uh, there was a, a committee uh, and she eventually became very good, good friends with Calder. Um, and uh, there is he, when, when the sculpture was actually in process and there were questions about how is it going to be shipped and getting it set up in Grand Rapids, he wasn't writing to the men on this committee who were involved, but he was writing to this woman, Nancy, uh, who had become his friend. And with many of the, the major works, there are these kind of very uh, personal stories, uh, uh, these these connections. The Coulter, Coulter thrived on, on that, that kind of, of, of thing. You write in your in your book that he he did some work for private homes. There are people who had calders yes, yeah. written just for their made up just for their own personal house. Yeah, I mean, again, a lot of these things um, uh, grow out of friendships or um, or people who were enthusiastic about his work who come to him and then become friends. Uh, uh, he did. Uh, uh, for friends in Connecticut, nearby friends, he actually did a mural on a wall near their swimming pool. Um, he uh, uh, would would do uh, works for for you know for for like to hang in a uh, a stairwell, uh, uh, so, so, something like that. He he, he was also very. Um, attuned to what kind of a work would be appropriate for what kind of a space. Uh, when he started doing big public works, he tried to use some of the skills and qualities of movement that he'd used in the small or medium-sized mobiles, which were really ten intended for in indoor spaces. And he realized over time that some of the kinds of movement that are very beautiful um, in, an, in an interior don't really work outside where you have stronger wind and things get kind of knocked around. So uh, he, he came more and more to uh, emphasize in the big public works uh, stability, stasis, um, and develop mechanisms, uh, a kind of single fulcrum, for instance, where rather than having all these different elements moving at different speeds as you would have in some of the smaller middle-sized mobiles, he would have a single bar with which rotated in the wind and created a kind of bold effect that worked out outdoors. Whereas inside, he loved very delicate uh, uh Qualities, almost some of the the the, the work meant for indoor spaces has a kind of Mozartian almost quality of intimacy of 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 kind of a sweet musicality. He created certain works um, that were meant to be bumped into you as you walked by them. Uh, there are there are there are mobiles for a home that sit on the floor where um, you were supposed to sort of bump into them, and then they would start sort of flickering as you passed, um, as if they were in a kind of conversation w with you. 
he he created tiny. There are lots and lots of these tiny mobiles, um, just this size. Uh, it's amazing. He could go from this very intimate uh, kind of Lilliputian scale to to this monumental scale, and he had a sense of what you needed to do in both. Um, he also had um, a sense of what kinds of subjects um, or motifs would work where. Um, as many people, I think, know, and some people uh, are lucky enough to have Calder posters or lithographs in their homes. Um, Calder, when he worked on paper or on canvas, and in, uh, in, in his last 20 years, he did hundreds and hundreds of works in gouache, this water-based medium and color on paper. He would do all kinds of insanely wacky kinds of things. Um, he would do like a series of people playing cards or um, uh, you know, he would get into funny faces or crazy parades of people and animals. At the same time, he would be doing a very austere 10 or 15 foot stable black with one or two you know profiles with very simple shapes um and i think he he had all this energy all and all these kind of crazy ideas in his head um and some of them he thought for now they wouldn't go over in a big public place they would end up being like kind of one-line jokes or something uh but then sometimes a few years later some of those crazy ideas will kind of filter into these these bigger works did his work evolve over time i mean if, if you if you personally since you've studied him so much looked at a piece that he did could you sort of tell where in the timeline it fell it, it both, it evolves and it also tends to circle around too. Um, uh, some, uh, the, I mean, the, the, well, first of all, the early work, the, er, the first work he was known for in the late 20s, uh, late 20s and to about, and he was even known, also known for in the early 30s was, was figurative. It was, um, it was wire figures of, animals um acrobats dancers uh and then and the first then the first abstract sculpture is very very austere very geometric the first stuff he shows in paris uh you know absolutely uh clear and succinct circles uh the angles are very sharp and then especially when they when he and Louisa they, they they live in Paris in the early 30s and then they come back to America as the depression is really darkening and the political situation in Europe is getting darker and they buy this uh rundown 18th century farmhouse in Litchfield County and being in the country amidst trees and flowers really reshapes his work toward more biomorphic, uh, sensuous kinds of elements, um, and the mobiles. It's that that then he he starts to think about wind as driving a mobile. A lot of the early moving works were um, powered 
by a, a crank or a motor actually. So you have a kind of regular movement. And it's really in Connecticut in the later 30s and into the 40s that the idea of this, this kind of unpredictable naturalistic movement comes in. Um, and in a sense, uh, in a sense, by the end of the 40s, you might say he has his um, repertoire of images and uh, his vocabulary, you might say, of forms and ways of putting forms together. But what then happens is he constantly reshapes that and rethinks it um, so that I sometimes, frankly, will we'll see something uh, later from a later period and not be sure of the date because it may, at times, I think he, he sort of would um, recapitulate something he'd done earlier. And particularly with the later stables, he will sometimes return to the very austere geometry of the earlier 30s. Um, so, so there's both... Um, constant evolution um, and also this kind of cycling around. At the very end of his life, he does this crazy series of large, they're like sort of around life-size figures in cut metal of these kind of wacky women who have three legs and high heels and um, uh, sometimes they have three arms and uh, they're, they're, they're very, um, they're funny but disturbing. They're like kind of disturbing goddesses or crazy uh, vaudeville actresses or something. Um, and that is in some respects a return to the, the, the his circus which he created in the late 20s with these small figures which he manipulated in performances. Um, but, it's, but they're also very different. Um, so there's constant change but a constant kind of rethinking. And frankly, this is one of the things I love about him, that the work uh, has all these different moods and aspects. Uh, I could not imagine writing um, a long book about, for instance, the, uh, the great Italian still life painter, Morandi, who painted the same series of bottles and pictures and so on. Uh, for decades and decades, and lived in Bologna with his sisters all his life. Um, he's a very, very great artist, but I don't know if I could write more than 15 or 20 pages about him. Um, or, uh, so one of the wonderful things about Calder is not only does, does the life have so many aspects of friendships and geographic shifts and places, but the work um, keeps changing. And then I think there are also um, changes that I talk about toward the end of the book uh, that have to do with uh, uh, the aging of a of a of a person. Um, Calder uh, had Parkinson's disease in his later years, um, which was a very closely held uh, uh, fact in the family. Um, <clears throat> even close friends didn't know. It's interesting. I mean, he never. Uh, uh, needed assistance walking. Um, a few months before he died, he was in Jerusalem uh, uh, overseeing, planning for a big commission. And they walked all over the old city of Jerusalem, up and down. He was 
fine. Um, uh, but this is a man who would love to dance. Um, he, he, he loved uh, jazz bands. He loved dancing to jazz or after he and Louisa were in Brazil, they got very into the samba. He loved mobility. Uh, he loved movement, obviously. And to have in your later decades the challenge of something that made movement harder, I think affected the work. And I think um, uh, speaking rather generally, there's a growing appreciation and interest in stasis, stasis and weightiness in the later work. Um, now, some of that has to do with these outdoor commissions where mobile, mobile elements were not necessarily um, viable. But I think some of it also has to do with him reacting also to changes in his own uh, body, uh, which is not unusual in, our, in creative people. You know, they uh, uh, shifting capacities with great artists they they often lead to a shedding of earlier kinds of virtuosity but then a an embrace of new kinds of uh, character and strength Jed in your book you write about a show that was at the Guggenheim that that it was what what made that show so monumental well, this is in uh, this is in the the sixties, the, the early the first half of the sixties, and uh, uh, it broke all attendance records. Uh, I think they had had a Van Gogh show at the Guggenheim a little while before, and Calder broke the attendance records of Van Gogh, and it was pandemonium at the Guggenheim. Up until this point. And in galleries and museums, people had been allowed to touch the mobiles, blow on them, which is really how it should be, you know, because you want to see them move. And one of the interesting things when you see the movies, they move in different ways. Some of them move, have kind of this kind of movement. Some of them have very fast movement. Uh, some of them go up and down. Uh, but at the Guggenheim, it was crazy. I mean, kids were racing down those ramps of the Frank Larry building, banging into things. They had to move things. They had to put plexiglass in the middle of the show. Apparently, uh, one friend of Calder's, wrote, the Calder's were in Paris uh, by the end of the show, wrote and said that uh, a, a moment belonged to another friend had been like damaged and, you know, it wasn't quite clear how it could be kind of gotten right again. Uh, and Calder, um, commented about uh, the show. He said, um, uh, well, everybody loves my work, work but, but the fan mail, it's, it's all from uh, kids under six. Um, and he actually commented that uh, the show that was at the Guggenheim was going to, was going to Paris. And he, he, uh, he hoped that there would be more focus in Paris on these large, dark, Stabiles. Um, uh, I mean, there there was a mobile in the Guggenheim called Ghost. Uh, there was a stable called, I believe, Guillotine for Eight. There were works with these kind of grave titles: Guillotine, Ghost. I mean, these are not, uh, you know, let's go out and play kinds of titles. And Calder and his wife too talked about this in letter, at least one letter to friends. They recognized that. 
think is that, okay, it's great to be super duper famous uh, and have the money and the commissions rolling in, but it's disturbing when the, the gravitas that's also part of your work is completely missed. Um, uh, Calder was a, a profoundly happy man. Uh, so he knew how to take things in stride. Um, but uh, but he, he understood what was going on. Um, uh, what I don't think he fully understood was how many younger artists in the 60s were looking to his work, not so much to the mobiles, but to the stabiles, to the work he was doing in the 60s. Um, the, the 60s were a period when minimalism begins, when, when younger artists begin to these very large, stark, geometric constructions, often made fact, uh, fabricated in factories. One of those artists, Donald Judd, uh, who was also writing criticism in the early 60s, writes with a certain kind of sympathy and certainly a lot of consideration about what Calder is doing. Um, there are younger composers uh, who are very interested in what Calder is doing. There are younger, uh, uh, there are choreographers who are who are interested. So it's, again, I think we talked about this a little bit with B, there's a kind of multi-level uh, reputation going on uh, in, those, in those later years. Um, and, and through it all, Calder remains Calder. Uh, uh, he, he goes to his shop every, every day, to the very end of his life. Um, it's funny in Sachet, this village they lived in France, uh, in in the, in the later decades of his life, he finally builds an enormous studio um, because people are kind of saying, you know, hey, you really should have like a fancy studio. You're really famous, but he never really uses it to work. Mm -hmm. he, he he goes back to this kind of funky studio uh, in in next to this house they had had in Sachet. Um, just, you know, an old, uh, I think it was a carriage, carriage shed or something, um, a kind of work sh shed, uh, which is more like the studio he has, he loves in Connecticut, which is, uh, so he loves, is, me, is to that the end studio, of his life. Is the studio in Connecticut still there? Can you visit it? Yes, yes. Uh, not at this point. Um, they're, the family uh, who are just the most extraordinarily, uh, careful and caring uh, shepherds of the legacy um, are trying to figure out how to make both the studio and the house and the grounds more available. But it's very complicated because a lot of the, uh, the original stuff material, you know, the things they lived with are still there and they want to both keep it the way it is and maybe in the future make it more available. I want to ask another question about the, the Guggenheim uh, exhibit because you write uh, for Thomas Hess, the extraordinarily astute editor of Art News, whose taste could admirably be, uh, be admirably open to many diverse forms of expression. Calder was very definitely a blowhard and the Guggenheim show was nothing short of a fiasco. Did, did he pay attention to what critics say? 
Well, that's always a funny question. You know, people deny that they read their reviews, but I think most people do. I would say that they, that he, he, I don't know if he read how much he actually read, but he was very aware of what was going on. And, and I mean, Hess, Hess represents one line of, of thinking. Um, I mean, there are these different, these kind of different streams going on. I mean, as I think happens with any kind of major creative figure, there are different opinions uh, kind of going on simultaneously. Yeah, Calder, Calder was aware of this. One of the things I realized um, in working for so many years on Calder was, um, I, I, I said this, I alluded to this a little earlier in our conversation. He would sometimes say the most flippant things. Um, he, he once said he was having a show at the Tate in London and a, an English newspaper reporter comes over to Paris, to France and interview him. And he says something like, well, I'm, I went over to London to make sure the mobiles weren't banging into each other. And that was that. Okay. And you think, God, I mean, what a silly thing to say. Then you'll read another interview and he'll start talking about, uh, the nature of the work, what he's trying to do, um, uh, and 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 what I realized after a while was, it all depends on who he's talking to. Uh, if if you know, if I'm reading a French interview with him and I'm thinking, wow, he's really going into great detail. He was very involved in in a pod, in the anti-war movement. The movement to, against American involvement in Vietnam in the 60s, was also involved in the, the uh, efforts to reduce nuclear, the threat of nuclear war. And like, uh, you find a French interview where he's talking great detail about that stuff. And then I look and see, to see who the interviewer is, and it turn, turns out it's a well-known French novelist. So when people came to talk to him where he felt that in an hour they could establish a kind of rapport, he would, he would do it. He would talk seriously. But after decades and decades of being often treated like a kind of clown or an amusement in the press, if somebody appeared who he rapidly understood, didn't really understand what modern art was, maybe even what art really was about, he kind of wouldn't try. Um, he once, he told a friend that, um, he 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 he, uh, he had a done a big mobile for Pittsburgh, and uh, uh, somebody said, "How long did it take?" Uh, and he said, uh, "Oh, three months." And then he he told his friend, he said, "I thought for a minute." Then I turned back to him. I said, "Well, it actually took thirty years, meaning I couldn't have done this in three months if I hadn't been working in my craft for thirty years." And he said, "They looked at me like they had no idea what I was talking about." So. So there, so he's always operating on many, many levels. Um, and I think um, when it came to criticism, he knew you're never going to please everybody. Um, and, uh, and extraordinary things have been said about him. You know, Jean-Paul Sartre, um, you know, one of the preeminent French writers and thinkers of the 20th century wrote an extraordinary essay about Calder in the 1940s. Um, uh, and it's, it's one of the most beautiful things ever written about Calder. And 
at once when talking to a friend, Coulter said, well, he was asked about, you know, what, do you ever have doubts? Do you ever get stuck? And he said, well, when I get stuck, I read what sort. Um, and and another person, uh, James Johnson Sweeney, the great, uh, who's a very great critic, wrote about me. So in other words, it's like, if I'm feeling insecure, this is what Jean-Paul Sartre said about me, okay? So, you know, some people are pissed off by my work, but others get it. Um, and I think he, uh, he, 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 he accepted that and he went on. Sometimes his, um, his joie de vivre, his ability to carry on, pissed people off people who tended to be depressed, depressive kinds of people, uh, the the painter Arshil Gorky, who ultimately committed suicide, who was always a kind of melancholy figure, was friends with Calder. Calder was very generous to him. But Calder drive, drove Gorky crazy because Calder was always like, get on to the next thing. Uh, look at the positive side of things. That can be very hard for people to take who don't take that attitude. <laughs> Uh, you, you write in your book how in Philadelphia there's the three generations of Calders on the Benjamin Franklin Parkway. There's the, the William Penn statue and the yeah. fountain at Fairmount, uh, the uh, Logan Circle, and then the Calder Mobile in the Art Museum. So there's uh, his grandfather and father, and he were prominent artists, and he had two daughters and grandchildren. Any artists in, the, in that line continuing the uh, tradition? Every, I mean, uh, his older daughter, uh, Sandra, is a, uh, a an illustrator who's published many children's books. Um, uh, her her daughter, uh, Andrea, uh, has done beautiful weavings and things. Um, one of uh, uh, a, another uh, a, a grandson, um, Holton, is an artist, a painter, and sculptor. Uh, there are a lot of creative, uh, uh, there's a lot of creative DNA. I think there's a great grand uh, daughter who's uh, uh, also into cartooning. There's a lot of creative, uh, there's a great grandson who's a musician. There's a lot of creative DNA in the family. Um, there's a lot of, uh, the, the Calders were um, passionate liberals in politics and there's a lot of that. Uh, in the family. Uh, Calder was very much a family man. I mean, the, the father, son, uh, and the Holy Ghost, because the, the, the mobile at Philadelphia Museum is, is ghost. Um, you know, Calder was always a, a family man. I mean, his, uh, he had, uh, you know, complicated relationship with his parents. His father was a famous sculptor, um, but he was close to his family. His mother, uh, in her later years, she lived well into her 90s, lived in a little house on their property in Connecticut. Um, uh, Calder once asked about his opinion about Picasso, said, I don't really like him. He was bad to his children. Um, and Sandy and Louisa Calder were devoted to their children, their grandchildren. Um, uh, and, and the family remains very, very much uh, that way. The foundation is run by one of Sandy Rohr, one of the grandsons. Um, uh, so yeah, it's and actually Calder died uh, in in October '76. Actually, there was a Calder festival in Philadelphia a month before he died, 
Um, he was in, they, the, he and his wife were in America. They, even when they were in their last decade or so, they were living mostly in France, but they would come to America every fall, at least for a few months. And they, when they were in New York City, they stayed with their daughter uh, in her house on McDougal Street. And uh, the day before Calder died, he was in Washington um, to complete plans for a huge combination mobile and stable in the Hart office, Senate, Senate office building, which is an extraordinary work, a great masterpiece. Um, and the next day, uh, he had all kinds of things planned. His, he had to show up at the Whitney when he died, which was a huge success. Um, uh, and he died early in the morning in his, um, his daughter's house on McDougal Street, which was close to where he started out as an artist. Um, he started out in Greenwich Village as an artist. He first courted Louisa uh, in Greenwich Village uh, that first winter after they met. Um, and uh, his last words, um, He'd had a, a heart attack. Um, he had these terrible chest pains and they were, had called an ambulance and he was getting dressed. It was very early in the morning and he's putting on his clothes and his uh, son-in-law said to him, Pop, everybody called him in the family. A lot of friends called him Pop. He said, Pop, can I help you? Um, and he said, no, I'll do it myself. And those were his last words before he collapsed. Um, and his other son-in-law who wrote later that 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 was Calder, um, that his last words were, I'll do it myself, that he, uh, he, he, always, he always marched to his own drummer. Um, uh, and, and he was a, a, a very, very, he was a very hardworking man. Uh, uh, you know, people say you make your own luck, but he was also a very, a very lucky man, really. You write in your story that he had quite the, the parties at his home in, in Connecticut. If you went to a Calder party, what would it have been like? Who would have been there and what would the, uh, the mood have been? Uh, well, this was their house in Roxbury. It's an old 18th century farmhouse, very unpretentious. Um, and they had added on a, a kind of somewhat larger living room kind of space. Um, uh, and uh, First of all, the, the place would, would always smelled of wine and uh, garlic. Um, uh, you know, there probably would be food, so you'd smell some delicious roast or something. And there'd be loud music. Um, it might be a jazz band that had come up from New York, uh, you know, two or three uh, musicians. Uh, so it'd be really noisy. And, uh, and the dancing was it was like no holds barred, like what the hell kind of dancing. Um, Calder uh, was absolutely uninhibited on the dance floor. Uh, and he might put on a crazy hat uh, and you could meet anybody at one of these parties. Um, uh, everybody in the neighborhood was invited. So, you know, the farmer next door would be invited and Arthur Miller, uh, the, the playwright would probably be there. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, Malcolm Cowley, the, you know, the writer, and, uh, intellectual, um, uh, and young people and old people. Um, and, uh, I mean, Arthur Miller, uh, co commented that, uh, people never wanted these parties to end and, uh, people would sort of, uh, 
I don't know, you know, in the middle of very early in the morning, they kind of find some place to put down their head. And then Miller said, the next morning, people would kind of appear like, well, are we going to continue? Is, is Louisa going to cook breakfast? Um, and I've heard wonderful stories from people my age uh, who were kids then. Um, one uh, uh, child, very close friends, about sort of waking up, you know, in the middle of the night and coming down and like, you know, just it's like it's like almost a Bacchanalian scene. Um, uh, and and there are letters after parties about lost pairs of glasses and uh, what went on around the pond. And um, Calder and Louisa ha did not have an open marriage. They were uh, a very, very close and happy couple. Um, Calder, you know, loved to, to, to hug people. He was very physical in that way. Um, and, and they kind of loved this kind of Bacchanalian atmosphere, but in the middle of it, they were kind of this, this solid center. Um, and for so many of their friends, both in uh, America and France, um, uh, they were the rock in a way. Um, uh, at, you know, in the days after Calder died, um, friend, a very dear friend in Connecticut uh, said, um, you know, we, everybody up here, we're, we're like going crazy. We don't know how we'll go on. I mean, we just don't know how to be up here in Litchfield County without the Calders. I'm afraid we're gonna have to end it there. We are out of time. We've been speaking with Jed Pearl. He is the author of this book, Calder, The Conquest of Space, The Later Years, 1940 to 1976. Thank you very much, Jed Pearl. Thank you so much. It's been great. It's been a pleasure, Phil. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.